What's up, bingers? I tell you what, you're in for a wild ride with today's episode. My guests today are the real McCoy. One is a retired state trooper detective, and the other is the retired DEA special agent best known for his role in capturing Pablo Escobar. These two will blow you away with their funny banter and their real-world stories. Please welcome the hosts of Game of Crimes, Morgan Wright and Steve Murphy, two guys who became cops because they knew they couldn't hack it as firefighters. The Internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. I'm joined here with with uh, Morgan Wright and Steve Murphy. Uh, you guys, uh, just even before we hit the hit the recorder, you guys. Your banter back and forth reminds me of my days in the firehouse. Uh, oh, wait a minute. You were a firefighter? Yeah. I was a oh, geez. This is over years. then. I'm yeah, sorry. I can't, we can't talk okay, to you, okay. man. Sorry. You guys are usually sleeping. Yeah, or eating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought you guys would appreciate me because, you know, they always say firemen exist so that, that cops have heroes too. <laughs> so that's, you got that backwards, pal. You got that backwards. That's our role, that's right? <laughs> that's funny. Some of my favorite ex-friends are firemen. Ex-friends, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> ah, we'll give you an exception, Bob. It's your well, show. It's, it's your show. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a twisted sense of humor that comes with the uh, the kind of jobs that we did. You, I mean, you guys have have in, insane careers. Then, did you guys ever work together? I know so. Morgan, you were a you were a state trooper, right? And then Steve, you were you were in the DEA. Did your paths ever cross? How did you guys connect with each other at this very late stage in your very old lives? See, that's uh, you making fun of me being a fireman. Our, our paths never crossed because I was working real criminal investigations, and he was out working wrecks and writing tickets as a trooper. Yeah, and when Steve got off his medication, then he came to the real world. He saw who really did the law enforcement. No, we we actually did cross paths, but in a different way. Not while I was working. I was a state trooper and a detective, um, but I ended up doing some work with the federal government, especially ATF, DEA. You know, we all worked mm-hmm. state and locals. Always collaborated. You know, with the the federal government on cases. But what was interesting is I know when Steve, and he'll talk about this later, when he was up uh, at the Fusion Center, I I was doing work at that time for the Department of Justice post 9-11. We were helping build their big information sharing uh, thing called One DOJ. And I'd been doing work in the intelligence community on intelligence sharing consolidation of the terrorist watch list. So Steve and I have crossed paths beforehand, but I'll tell you who I crossed paths with, and I didn't know at the time, was Steve's partner, Javier. When he was back in Colombia in 2000, I was working on Plan Colombia, and we were both in Bogota at the same time at the embassy. We just never knew it. So, and 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 Javier uh, Javier Pena, right? Mm-hmm. Is he is the the D? He's the special agent that Narcos, the show, is kind of based on, right? Him and Steve. played by yeah. He and I, he and, and I, he and I were partners in Bogota for. Three years. He was there for six and a half years the first time. Then he went back for another two later. But um, I got there in June '91 and left in June '94. So who who plays you, uh, Steve? In because so in the notes that I got from Erica, she she knows that I'm interviewing you, 
and and she notes that that your partner Steve or Javier Pena is played by Pedro Pascal on Narcos, <laughs> and then asks if while I have you on the Zoom, I could maybe get a meeting for her. Uh, <laughs> Everybody loves Pedro. He's you know what? He's one of the nicest guys in the world too. Well, I'll tell you who originally played Steve's part was Homer Simpson. He actually played it better than Steve did. So, <laughs> was it? Okay, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Hey, it was better than Pee Wee Harmon, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, who plays your who plays your part now? Uh, it's a guy named Robert Boyd Holbrook. Everybody calls him Boyd. Um, uh-huh. His career after Narcos is is doing pretty well. He's not he's not the same level as as Pedro yet, but he's well on his way. Right. See, I'm the I'm the worst pop culture guy in the in the world. But isn't Pedro the same guy that plays uh, the Mandalorian and Prince Oberon and Game of Thrones? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah. 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 That's him. Yeah, my wife would be devastated that I. Well, actually, she'd be impressed that I knew that much of, of who he was. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, if if ever you know what, she may want to listen into Game of Crimes down the road because you never know we might have Pedro on there. Don't know who's going to stop by, huh? Uh, yeah, I've been. I had a bunch of running around to do today, so I was listening through some of your guys' episodes and and God, the 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 podcast is great. I love the the banter all the way back. The case we're going to talk about today was in your your guys' episode one, a nice mm-hmm. three hour long episode and and just hearing you guys kind of just chitter chatter and break down what the podcast was going to be like it was again it it really is reminiscent of the the coffee table at the at the firehouse for all those years uh so i I really never knew never knew what that was like having all that time to relax and kick my feet up and sit in an easy (laughs) chair and watch tv i might have i I will tell you this bob (laughs) you know you saw they they had it on tv for quite a while but you saw the called live pd you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, they were going to do another one called Live FD, but there was absolutely no action. It was boring. So, <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that true? <laughs> uh, hey, Bob, and in recognition of your past career, I even wore a red shirt today. I don't know why. That's very, that's very nice of you. Did you guys ever spill coffee on your shirts when you guys were having your coffee and donuts just parked on the side of the road? Well, the, the trick is don't drink, <laughs> don't drink coffee out of your spit cup. If you know what I mean. <laughs> You're right. You know, first of all. I've done that. Oh, uh, oh, oh. <laughs> it's ruined my car. Oh my god! <laughs> the second it hits your lips, it just splares out. Oh everywhere. yeah! I had just gotten a fresh cup of coffee one time in my in my I got, had my second issued state patrol car, and I just gotten some hot coffee. And somebody runs a stop sign in front of me, basically makes me stop. So the coffee not only hits my deck and all my equipment, but hits my clean brand new uniform. Oh. And let me tell you what. Uh, you know, I think I ran out of ink that day riding tickets because it's like <laughs> you, you could have hit my car, but you got my uniform dirty. That, yeah, you that's just don't do that. We all know troopers, troopers cars and their uniforms never get dirty because they don't do anything. Uh, we keep right. them clean because I'm so good at doing it, Steve. I don't have to get dirty. I'm very professional. You can come on over and wash my car. Let's see how good you are at it now. No, see, that's where we get the fire department who's got nothing to do to come over and wash our cars. <laughs> we can wash cars like a mother. Like you, We've never seen Man, I see them all the night. time polishing. Yeah. That's right. You yeah. guys do have yeah. the shiniest equipment on the road. <laughs> that's that's right. Yep. Uh, you know, it's funny that the coffee store, at least yours, someone caused it. So I was, the last three years of my career, I was a fire chief. And, uh, and as you know, the fire chiefs, they wear... The white, white uniforms. Yeah. Uh, I should never have been allowed to wear a white uniform. <laughs> day, day one, I get in my new, you know, I'm finally out of the, uh, out of the engine and I'm in the, in the, the SUV that I'm driving around. I'm the big boss man. And I had a cup of coffee and, and back then I was, I was a smoker. I went from the chewing, I, I think after the spit cup incident, I switched over to smoking before I finally quit it all. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I, I got in the truck and I still to this day don't know how I do it, but somehow I was, I think I was holding my phone up to my ear with my cup of coffee and somehow making a turn. And on my first day wearing a white uniform, oh. poured coffee all the way down my left shoulder. Oh. And I went into my first meeting with my entire left shoulder covered. And you look at it and you can't possibly fathom how does someone spill coffee on the top of their shoulders. <laughs> But I managed to do it on day one. So where, where were you a fire chief at? Uh, in Michigan, uh, where I live now. Well, I actually live out in a small town right now, but it was a, it was a fire district that encompassed a bunch of four different municipalities all into one. Oh, cool. Right. Yeah, we were super busy, and I was a big hero, rescued a lot of cats from trees and stuff. And we're glad you, we're glad you finally got a real job here, so here we yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, all of us, right? Now, now we're doing God's work. Yeah, That's right. Sitting in front of a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> sitting in the basement. Right. So tell me a, a little bit of, about your careers. Uh, Morgan, I'll, I'll start with you. So you were a state trooper. Where were you a state trooper? So, so wait, wait. Everybody get a pillow out. Okay, go ahead. Well, at least I'm not from Krusty Crotch, West Virginia, which is where Steve is from. We'll talk about his PD in a little bit. So, uh, no, I started off as a Salina police officer, Salina, Kansas, Uh, went to the state patrol and then um, was stationed out in Southwest Kansas. And then I ended up my time on a police department, Garden City PD, where I just came back from last week, saw, uh, met the, the, the new chief as somebody I've known for years, the captains and stuff. So, um, but so I did that for about 18 years, but then I moved out to Virginia and this is where I actually got involved with a lot of stuff. So I, I was teaching interview and interrogation. So for a while, I was instructing all the federal agencies, uh, taught out at the National Security Agency to damage assessment agents from espionage cases. And then I started getting involved pre-9-11 on Plan Columbia, like I said, working on that stuff. And then post-9-11, it was uh, things in Department of Defense and the intelligence community around uh, you know, how to apply deliberately apply technology to solve big mission problems like the sharing of intelligence and information terrorist watch lists, uh, things like that. I was a advisor, senior advisor for the State Department Anti-Terrorism Assistance Program. So I was over in Pakistan and Turkey and the Middle East and places like that, uh, providing uh, technical support in the global war on terror, as they say. And But I was also in the private sector. So I did stuff in uh, big companies like KPMG and um, Cisco, uh, Bell Labs, Alcatel-Lucent, things like that. So you had a very busy career and went all the way from, did, now did you go, did you start with as being a state trooper? Did you work from a local law enforcement? When, yeah, started off on Salina PD and then uh, got on the state oh, patrol. Yeah. Yeah. The year I got on, um, there were only 16 in our class, um, over 2000 people applied and, uh, they picked 16 of us and, uh, we all made it out of the academy, but one guy on his final day of probation, they said, no. We can't turn you loose on the citizens of Kansas and <laughs> Barney Fife. Like, wouldn't, wouldn't even give him one bullet. Well, we all knew it was happening in the academy because this guy, I'm telling you, it just—I I don't know how he got hired, and then I don't know how he lasted that long. But th- there's always one, like you know, like Murphy was the one in his class. You know, I was—I right. was the star of the class. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, kind of, kind of along those lines. It's like I say, you can be a leader or you can be a follower. And I chose to be the leader. <laughs> <laughs> you know what you. Honestly, I, 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 I stopped listening to you, Morgan, as soon as you said interview and interrogation, because that's like, like I, I didn't really stop listening, but <laughs> that is, so my other show, my, my main work I do is I work on wrongful conviction cases, uh, and we do a crowdsource reinvestigation of these yep. old cases, and so many times we come across where there are you know, interview and interrogation tactics that are used that are 
that are less than honest and, and break the uh, rules. No, and, and let me tell you, uh, that nothing pisses me off more than that. Because I tell you, when I learned, and, and there really, there's two things to it. There's the interview and then there's the interrogation. Not right. every interview leads to an interrogation, but every interrogation must be preceded by an interview to be effective. Right. And it's not TV. It's not the stuff you see on there where they yell at you and they scream at you. Look, the way to get a, the way to get an admission is not to yell at somebody, you're going to prison, boy, you're getting the nail, you're going to die. That doesn't right. really engender, you know, hey, maybe I should tell you this stuff. But yeah, but you have to be, there's a fine line you can walk. The Supreme Court said you can use trickery and chicanery, mm-hmm. you know, but you can't, but you can't, you know, the thing is, but you can't do things that would induce somebody you can't give them the case facts and then have them repeat it back to you and say hey that's a confession you know so uh, that i i watch i I will watch some of this stuff and it just as to me it's something i'd spend a lot of time to be professional at to be good at i mean i went through the original fbi behavioral science program uh, on Mm -hmm. uh serial crime profiling you know for me doing an interview and then uh, if it were followed by an interrogation to me that was that was you wanted to be the master of your craft you didn't want to be just I watch on TV, it just I'm telling you, Bob, I'll see some of this stuff on TV and I see bad tactics. I see them word things wrong. They're sitting there going, yeah, uh-huh, okay, okay, yeah. Uh, and and did, then did you do this? And then did you do this? You know, and it's like, right. you know, you've got to build, and Steve knows this too, you know, when, and he'll tell you too, you've got better stories, you know, down in Columbia, but you've got to build rapport, whether it's bad mm-hmm. guy or a bad girl or whatever. You, first thing you got to do is build rapport and you have to do a lot of homework. Most of these cops, when they go in to do these interviews, they don't do the requisite amount of homework on the person they're about to interview before they get in there. Because I need to have facts. I need to know about where the context, where they came from. I do a whole kind of workup before I would go in and do the interview. So, yeah, no, uh, but that's one of the reasons why I taught it. I wanted to get people, look, if you do, uh, and the NSA proved this out over a huge study they did with 300 people, but if you if you really do interview and interrogation correctly, a properly trained person utilizing both verbal and nonverbal b- body clues, basically, you, you get the case context. So uh, using uh, both uh, verbal, nonverbal, and armed with the case facts, you are more reliable than a polygraph is if you are a properly trained interviewer. Right. And that and that's, you know, I, I, I'm going to have to hit you up with this next time we have one to uh, analyze. I, I work with, with some people from the FBI. You might be familiar with Jim Clemente, who yep. ran the behavioral science program. Mm-hmm. He's a good friend of mine and helps us out quite a bit and has been kind of a mentor to me. But, you know, we have all the, t- you know, like right now we have a case that I'm working on. It's a, you know, a 15 year old suspect where, of course, they didn't record everything, and their, her confession is a written statement that the detective typed out himself and then had her sign, mm-hmm. and you know, no parent, no lawyer presence, and, you know, and like I said, was the good cop, gave her, gave her a cheeseburger, bought her some candy, told her, oh, just, you know, let's get through this and sign this, and you can go home, and she signed it, and then she got hooked up for capital murder right afterwards. So some of the, but then, you know, some that we have recorded. I always love having, you know, what we, I covered, I actually, my TV series was on um, the West Memphis three case. And I always think back, yep. like what you were just saying about not, not giving the, the suspect information for them to repeat back. You know who the biggest failure was on that was Henry Lee Lucas. When they gave him, they, they would sit down with him and they, they, they would say, Hey, we've got some stuff. And he, they would let him see the case files and then he would mm-hmm. repeat back the stuff. And they pinned so many murders on him. That was, mm-hmm. It was just a travesty between the sheriff and one of the rangers that worked on it. I mean, that mm-hmm. to me was one of the biggest travesties. Uh, of Because the other thing, too, is you get somebody to falsely admit to a crime, here, here, you know, here's the shocker. The person who really did it is still out there. Right. Right. Yeah, I said the West Memphis Three with uh, Jesse Miss Kelly, who was, uh, you know, was kind of intellectually challenged and young, 17 years old. And you can listen to that entire recording and listen to them telling him so – 
who then stabbed him with a knife and who, you know, who choked him, who did this and which one of the three did, and just giving it in, in mm-hmm. at one point I broke down the, uh, the transcript, the interview transcript and Jesse's words over the period of about seven minutes were yes, yes, mm-hmm, uh-huh, yep, in his confession because mm-hmm. everything was coming from the the police officers. But anyway, I'll, I'll move on. Just, just as soon as you said that that was your specialty with, uh, was it with the the NSA you were doing that? Well, I I instructed for the NSA from an outside group. So, but but right. uh, but also not only that, but went around training federal, state, local law enforcement. Uh, you know, in many different locations. Right. Yeah. So as soon as I as soon as I heard you say that, I I didn't really quit listening, but I thought, oh, this would be a good resource next time we have one of these. Cases See, Steve. To, uh, Haha. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. Well, yeah. and, as, <laughs> and as you can tell, you know, the big challenge with our podcast was getting Morgan to come out of his shell and speak up. <laughs> He's been, yeah. <laughs> Both of you guys, this has been really, this has like been pulling teeth getting you guys to say anything. That's right. That's right. We're, we're very bashful and introverted. <laughs> right. Uh, well, Morgan, I think that you'd be a good resource, or excuse me, Steve, if uh, if I want to meet Pablo Escobar, maybe you could. Uh, well, meeting Pablo is going to be a challenge. He's yeah. dead. No, <laughs> you must be in the black arts there if you're going to meet Pablo. Bob, I don't know, brother. <laughs> Pedro Pascal is what I meant to say. <laughs> Oh, that's poor. for Erica. You want to meet boy. You know, you know, poor Pablo. God God rest his soul. Hey, that's what podcasts are all about, is having fun. You right? damn fireman sniffing all that exhaust. It's got to you there, Bob. <laughs> right. Did you have a liquid lunch before we got on here? What are you doing? Yeah. You, you know, I quit the fire department when they started ho- hooking those big hoses up to the trucks when we'd run them inside. Yeah. It just took all the fun out of it. That's you know? right. <laughs> we did. When I first started, part of our morning routine was, we had to go out and start all three engines that were out in the in the apparatus bay and do our checks with them running for at least ten minutes. These big diesel trucks and it would be a cloud of smoke down to your ankles. And oh, then you get geez. your annual training in on how to revive somebody from carbon monoxide poisoning. Yep. I mean, it exactly all works out. Right. Yeah. CPR. Yep. <laughs> so, so Steve, tell me a little about your a little bit about your career. I, I know that you were a, a DA special agent uh, and you were the lead investigator on the Pablo Escobar. Okay, so uh, what, what was your career like? Is it was it as colorful as as Morgan? Oh, more so, more so. I mean, he, he's like a, a novice, you know, hanging out with the big boys. <laughs> now, it's I started out as a uh, uniform cop in the metropolis of Bluefield, West Virginia. Bluefield okay. is common spelling. Bluefield, okay, not Krusty Crotch or whatever else he comes up with. He comes up with some crazy names. But uh, so I worked uniform patrol for six years, and then I became a railroad police officer down in Norfolk, Virginia, for five and a half years. But wait, wait, what, is, what is a railroad police? They guard police trains. In five and a half years, not a single train was stolen under Murphy's watch. <laughs> I done good, didn't I? <laughs> Stop! You can't give me shit for being a fireman. You guard. <laughs> I know. I was waiting for this. I was waiting for this. You you were in charge of making sure trains didn't get stolen? Did any of your houses burn down? I'm sure they (laughs) did. Nobody stole the train, though. (laughs) Touche. You got me. Uh, Railroad cops, they investigate all crimes committed on railroad property except for capital crimes. So it's Uh mostly burglaries and thefts and, and junk like that. So. Uh, and God bless. There's some great investigators out there. I'm certainly not uh, dissing on them, but it just wasn't for me. Uh, one of the railroad cops that I worked with is a former Virginia State Trooper who had worked on a DEA task force. And he's the one, Pete Ramey. He's the guy that got me really interested in DEA and, and uh, just always was interested in narcotics investigations. 
Uh, applied for DEA in 1985. They finally hired me in 1987. <laughs> it's a long process. <laughs> Uh, but I tell you what, after, uh, after my first drug bust in Miami, uh, I never looked back. I spent 26 years as a DEA agent. It's, it's a, what is that, what does that process look like? The, like the steps up the ladder. So is it like a, like a, a normal police department where you start off being kind of a, a beat cop where you're the one kicking down the doors, uh, and then move up to Columbia or how did the, out of that process, how'd you get from one point to the other? Well, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty much like. The other police departments, you start out as a special agent, uh, then, you know, you work yourself up through steps, through grade increases. So you start as GS9, then you get an 11, then you get a 12, and then a senior agent, uh, journeyman level is a GS13. Then a 14 is a first-line supervisor. We call it a group supervisor or a resident agent charge. Next is an assistant special agent in charge, and that's when you're starting to get at the executive level. And then the next step is a... Uh, an appointment to the senior executive service, which requires the attorney general's approval. And there's, there's several steps in that, but that's as high as you can go without getting a presidential appointment. You know, they, there weren't a lot of redneck hillbillies in DEA besides me. So they needed a token and I got promoted up this <laughs> official motto of DEA was screw up and move up. And Murphy was proof of that. <laughs> <laughs> that so that's, but same thing it used to be true with the fire department that if you, uh, if you wanted to get promoted up to a lieutenant, all you had to do was crash a fire truck. They didn't want you to. <laughs> they, they wanted you, you off drive road. Any, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they didn't want you to drive anymore, so they bump you up a rank. <laughs> uh, but I was with DEA. I was stationed in Miami for four years. Then we went to Bogota, Columbia, for three years. From there, three and a half years in Greensboro, North Carolina, then to Atlanta, where I got my first line supervisor job for three and a half years, then to Washington for five years, then back to Atlanta for three and a half years. And then I finished out my career in Washington. Very, very nice. And then, and then you finish out your career and you end up having a TV show made about you, a very popular TV show, uh, Narcos. You didn't, you didn't have one? No, well, no, see, I'm still pretty young. Uh, oh, okay. Steve. You still got you time. Be, you tell. Right. So, so they actually had me star in my own TV show. Uh, instead of having somebody, you know, they haven't have somebody else do it, you know, like when you get up there and up there in years <laughs> like yourself, uh, and it was squeezed right in between the infomercial at one thirty in the morning and three thirty in the morning. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did that, how does that come about? I mean, did, did you retire and think I want to look into the entertainment industry or did, did people come to you? Uh, yeah, it, this is, believe me, this is the last thing. My partners have your opinion. This is the last thing either one of us ever thought would happen to us. Um, mm -hmm. After I got to Washington, D.C., I've got a friend here that's a small-time producer. He's won a couple Emmys, and, and he introduced me to a couple of producers that said, hey, we want to do something with the Escobar story. So I, I live in D.C., in the D.C. area, and Javier's down in San Antonio. So I met with these two producers. Well, they had personal agendas. They wanted to make political statements out of our story, and I'd hate politics as much as mm -hmm. you do, I'm sure. So we just said, you know what? Screw it. Nobody really cares. It's been too long. Nobody cares about the Pablo Escobar story. Then uh, one day, uh, a retired Marine that we had worked with down in Columbia called me. I hadn't talked to him in over 20 years. And so we called up and I said, well, you know, what are you doing here? You know, are you in town? You want to get together and have dinner? And he's like, no. Well, he said, uh, he said, actually, I'm on a little bit of a mission. There's a, a producer in Hollywood who wants to talk to you. And I said, you know what? His name was Gil. I said, Gil, we've been down this road before, and I, we're just not interested. You know, you get your hopes up, and then nothing happens, and it's very disappointing. Mm -hmm. well, I don't know if you know any retired Marines, but they can be rather colorful in their language. 
So after he used all the all the dirty words in the book, I'm like, okay, okay, I'll call this guy in California. His name was Eric Newman. Uh, I called Eric. He's the creator of Narcos, and he gave me a spiel on the phone, and and I said thanks, but no thanks. And I I tell you, I'm I'm pretty sure Eric probably fell out of his chair when I said no because. We have right. since learned that people will sell their souls in Hollywood to be on TV. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yeah. So, uh, and this is kind of funny because he said, well, listen, I'm coming to D.C. Would you have dinner with me and two writers? And this is the honest truth, Bob. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is going to be a free dinner in a free really nice dinner. restaurant. God, sounds like a fireman. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we fed the cops all the time. They came into the station to eat dinner, eat our food. Yeah. Well, hey, you guys didn't have anything else to do. You're pretty good cooks. <laughs> So anyway, uh, you know, did we did our research on them, and and uh, once I met them, our personalities clicked. And at the end of the dinner, Eric asked me, he said, uh, "Let me ask you one question: Why are you guys so hesitant to tell your story?" And I told him, I said, "The last thing that we want to happen is anybody would ever glorify a mass murderer, the world's first narco terrorist, a guy like Pablo Escobar." And Eric promised me that night that they would never do that, and to this day, he's lived up to his word. So, excuse Steve me. Steve gets all choked up when he talks about this. <laughs> right. So, that was. Uh, Just to I be clear, to that was a burp, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I had a liquid lunch. Why, what? <laughs> so, that, you know, we talked to him in February. I met him in March. In May, and this is 2013. In May, we had signed contracts with Netflix. In June, I retired from DEA. In July, we were sitting in the writer's room in Hollywood, writing the first episodes of Narcos. Oh, wow. That's how quick it happened. So I guess it's a good time because, uh, to talk about the Pablo Escobar case because, you know, like you mentioned that you didn't want to glorify this mass murderer. And, and when you research Pablo Escobar, it's really interesting because you have like horrible human. You know, he was the, the, the king of cocaine. He was involved in all these I mean, just absolute massacres and murders. But then there was like this, there was the group of people that that loved him. They thought that he was like that, you know. They referred to him as as kind of like Robin Hood, or he was seen like like Robin Hood, you know, stealing from the rich, giving to the poor. And so there was like a following. I mean, what was there twenty five thousand people who attended his funeral? So there's he's like this this horrible mur- mass murderer, drug kingpin who had a massive following of people who loved him. So, so can you kind of bring? Explain who Pablo Escobar is to the people that are listening, or was. He's dead now. Okay. We, we covered that a few minutes and ago. And you can't meet him, Bob. We, we've established <laughs> that. If you, you could arrange sure, a meeting with me, I would really appreciate it. I'm pretty sure Pedro doesn't want to meet you either, so. <laughs> Erica, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so Pablo was uh, grew up a poor kid. You know, His dad was a dirt farmer. His mom was a school teacher. They really didn't have anything. Uh, but at a young age, uh, he became a criminal. He started, <laughs> he is really way up there in the criminal element. He was stealing hubcaps and gravestones out of cemeteries. Mm. So he got involved with a uh, small drug deal. I think it was, I want to say 17 kilos, but I'm not sure. Uh, and he realized how much money he could make. So he went and killed the guy that got him involved in it and took his place. Realized he had no conscience. Had uh, no compunction whatsoever killing people. That's just part of doing business. You know, you, you got to pay your taxes. That's what I hate about my business. And uh, with him, you know, you got to kill people to keep moving up and up forward. So he didn't have a problem with that. He eventually worked himself to where he was responsible for the manufacture and distribution for as much as 80% of the world's cocaine. 
I mean, think about that, Bob. We're all in podcasts. What we love to have eighty percent of the market out there. <laughs> I'd love to have eight percent of the market. Yeah, wouldn't you? Uh, so would we? Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, just so he was from stealing hubcaps to how how long of a time span was that before he had eighty percent of the market? Oh, uh, he he was in his heyday in the mid to late eighties. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he had killed so many people. I mean, he was starting to turn public opinion against him. You know, mm-hmm. so Javier and I, we we have a speaking business in which we travel around the world. This is our sixth year. Last year sucked because of COVID. This year's not a whole lot better because of COVID. Okay. But the first four years, we were averaging 75 appearances a year around the world. So, oh, wow. um, you know, it, um, and that's why I make a big deal about getting 80% of the market because I'd love to have 80% of the entertainment market. You know, we probably, probably wouldn't yeah. be talking to you, Bob. We'd, we'd be at the firehouse with <laughs> yeah, you. We'd be, yeah, we'd be, we'd be living the life of luxury. Having a, but, having a cup of coffee. But, but an important point to come out of this too, and this is something I dealt with when I was down in Bogota, it, the after effects of a lot of stuff. But the thing that drove the huge conflict wasn't so much the co- cocaine trade as when Colombia changed its constitution to allow for the extradition of people from Colombia to the United States. What's the one thing El Chapo feared? Extradition to the U.S. What's the right. one thing? And so this is what, because when I was down there, the longest running civil war in the world right now is still with the FARC in Colombia, the Armed Revolutionary Forces of Colombia. And these, I mean, the, the, the Colombia has been in a state of, you know, civil unrest to one degree or another for how long now, Murph? What, 50 years, 60 years? 50, I think it's 56, 58 years now. Yeah. And, and so what, what Pablo did was he took advantage of that. I mean, and his, the effects, even when I was down there, it's 2000, you could still see the effects of the laws. In fact, you go down to Columbia, part of the reason that they, when you see motorcycle drivers, they have to have their license plate number on the back of their helmet and on a vest. Too many people were killed by people with Uzis on a motorcycle driving up. And yep. so we're, we're sitting there that day, we're looking at it, but you know, from a legal standpoint, it, it, extradition is what really drove a lot of this violence because they did not want to end up like uh, Pablo or like uh, El Chapo is at Supermax ADX in Florence, Colorado. Right. And, and you know, I mean, we, Javier and I re- attribute ten to 15,000 murders to Pablo Escobar. He had one remaining Sicario, a guy go- that went by the nickname Popeye, who passed away about a year ago. Popeye's on a documentary that we were on. I think it's the one called Facing Escobar. Uh, I don't know if it's Discovery or History. It's one of those channels. But Popeye says the number is more like 50,000 people that Escobar is responsible for killing. Popeye himself admits to murdering 300 people and arranging as many as 3,000 murders. Now, Pablo had, when his heyday, he had as many as 500 Sicarios working for him and protecting him. I mean, so nobody knows what the real number is, but the guy's a mass murderer. That's who we're talking about. He's the world's first narco-terrorist. So what was it about him that, that, that made it so that 25,000 people went to his, went to his funeral? What, what made him beloved by some? Money. Well, that, and, and I'm glad you brought up about the Robin Hood thing, because we try to dispel that rumor at every opportunity. So where mm-hmm. he earned that, was he went and there were very, very poor people back during this day. The, the socioeconomic classes in Colombia were haves and have-nots. So mm-hmm. it was either extremely poor or extremely wealthy. There was no middle class. So you've got people who are actually living on the edge of a trash dump. Their clothing comes out of the trash dump, their food, whatever pieces of wood, cardboard they can get out for housing, that kind of thing. So Pablo comes in, and these are good things that he does. He builds housing, free housing for these people, for these poor people. 
you know, think about it. You've been living on the edge of a trash dump. All of a sudden, you have a roof over your head. You have running water, right. electricity. You have a door with a lock on it. So it gives you a sense of security. You know, he came in, he built clinics, he built soccer fields, he gave away money, he gave away food. All of those are great things. And that's where that Robin Hood myth comes from. But as his Sicarios are being murdered, or not murdered, being killed during firefights with the police and the military in Colombia, he needs new recruits. Where do you think he went to recruit people? Right. I'd say, was, there, was there an ulterior motive to that, or was he oh, just, just being a nice guy? No. Yeah. Oh, there's always a payback. So. He uh-huh. went right back into those that neighborhood, and he might go in and say, you know, these poor people come running out to him. He would hug them. He, he knew how to, sh- you know, schmooze these people. He'd hug the little kids. He'd kiss them on the cheek. He'd give them cash. Oh, you're my people. You know, I love you. Thank you for what you do. And by the way, I need 100 people to volunteer to come and work for me, to be my Sicarios. And the sad part is you might have 400 young people, and we're talking young teenagers, step up who were willing to kill for Pablo, who were willing to die for Pablo. So what he really is, rather than a Robin Hood, he's a master manipulator because he manipulated right. all those people into thinking he's a good guy. And it's continuing today. I mean, Well, he got, was a Joseph Goebbels. That's exactly, he did yeah. the same thing that Goebbels did, that Hitler did. I mean, um, they used their influence. And, and like I said, even years later when I was down there, you got to be careful uh, in certain areas. Like Bogota, you know, is a different area, but you got Medellin, Cartagena, Cayi. But you say the wrong thing about Pablo oh, in yeah. Bogota, nothing really happens to you. Say the wrong thing about Pablo in Medellin, what happens, Steve? Oh, you might die. You might die. The most uh, the most popular tourist attraction in Colombia oh. is Pablo Escobar's gravesite, and we That's might insane. have a, we but, might have a photograph. I'm not saying we do, but we might have a photograph of a DEA badge laying up against that tombstone that says Pablo Escobar on <laughs> it. And the guys that, and the guys, if they had done that, they said as soon as they snapped that picture, they grabbed the badge and ran. <laughs> if they had done that. If, if they, they had done if that. That's yeah. And if they had balaclavas over their heads so nobody could identify them. <laughs> well, then they would have blended right, right in. Down there. <laughs> right. So, so uh, you were part of the, and, and for people to hear the, the, the full story of this, you need to check out uh, Game of Crimes, and it's episode one. I mean, you guys get right into it. Uh, but kind of a Reader's Digest version. So what you were you were part of the team, Steve. Uh, you and you and Javier, who took P- a Pablo down. Can you tell that story and and kind of a, a shortened version of it? Sure. So when he escaped from his custom built prison, and calling that that place a prison is a joke in itself. It was more like a country club, uh, complete mm-hmm. with nightclub in it and everything. It took us 18 months to capture him. So the day after he escaped, Javier and I moved to Medellin, and we started to live with the Colombian National Police in a compound that became known as the Search Block. Now, you know, we had the U.S. Army's Delta Force there with us. We had the Navy's SEAL Team 6 come in. They were all with us for 18 months. We had the, that organization, uh, Clowns in Action, that they call CIA, was with us. Um, you know, so now, now, Steve, there are some good people at CIA. Bob, Tom, Mike, Steve, you know, whatever Paul. fake name, His, Nick Paul. Every Paul. person I met was named Paul. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so, you know, we were, we were there in an advisory capacity. Now, we were not supposed to leave the base, but Javier and I knew we couldn't do our <laughs> We knew we couldn't do our job by doing that. So we went out, you know, every day. We were out on the Huey gunships doing raids. We're doing surveillance. We're meeting informants. We're paying informants. Uh, We set up a 1-800 number. We got the U.S. government to offer a $5 million reward for Pablo, uh, all that stuff. 
But here's the cool thing about the whole thing. On the day, on December 2nd, 1993, the Colombian National Police were out using radio directional finding equipment to locate Pablo's telephone because the telephones back then weren't 3G, 4G, or 5G like we enjoy today. They were basically radio telephones. Uh-huh. The, the premise of the equipment they were using operated off of what we call triangulation. Triangulation tells you you shoot a beam from three points where those three lines intersect. That's where your phone is. So the Columbia National Police, this special unit that we worked with called DIJIN, D-I-J-I-N, they were the ones out there doing this. Um, I'm back at the base. I'm actually in the room with all the other uh, American military guys, you know, because 18 months, you get to be pretty good friends. And we're just kind of shooting the breeze. And I see the executive staff for Colonel Martinez rushing over towards his office. So, you know, I told the guys, hey, something's going on. I'll be right back. Uh, we had such a good relationship with the Columbia National Police. You know, the colonel motions for me to come on in. He's on the radio and he's calling the shots. He said, uh, and here's another cool thing about this. The guy that found Pablo using the radio directional finding equipment was Lieutenant Martinez, who happened to be the son of Colonel Martinez. Okay. So okay. he's the guy riding around the meter trying to find it. He said as he's driving down the street, he sees Pablo on the phone looking out the window. So we've got 100% confirmation he's there. The colonel says, uh-huh. stand by. We're loading up the troops. Don't let him get away. Well, when we say load up the troops, we're talking about 600 people. You know, we had a 600-man force. You can't do that in five minutes. you got to get the trucks out. you got to issue weapons. You, get, right. you know, It just takes a little while. So the Dahin guys were out there. Well, they responded immediately. They said, hey, we've got it surrounded. The colonel said, do what you got to do. They used debt cord. They blow the front door off the hinges. It's a three-story uh, row house, basically. They go in. Pablo starts shooting at them. They get in the gun battle. We all know he, he went up to the third floor, jumped on the roof of the two-story townhouse or row house behind him, got caught in a crossfire, and you know justice was served on December 2nd, 1993 in Medellin, Colombia. Hey, and Bob, one interesting little fact he was talking about the lieutenant's son. These guys self-taught themselves. They had to figure out how to do this, so they self-taught themselves how to use. This is not easy equipment. I mean, this is sophisticated mm-hmm. equipment, and these guys taught themselves how to use it because they had to. They had to find this guy as much as the, the Robin Hood thing was in effect. This guy was killing cops on a regular basis. Uh, right. If people understood how many just people died and law enforcement officers died, and a country that's, what, probably 30, 40 million uh, people, Steve? Yeah. I mean, the, the number of police officers that died down there was about 10 times the number that die each year in the United States. And this is how violent it was. And here's the, so here's the final scenario, Bob. And I meant to mention this just a second ago. But you got over here, you got Colonel Martinez, and he's talking on his radio to who? His son, Lieutenant Martinez. We call that the good guy, father, son team. Over here, you got Pablo. Right. And who was he talking to on the phone? His son, Juan Pablo, with, we call that the bad guy father. I usually call it something else, but I don't want to curse on your show here. So <laughs> We encourage cursing on my show. Well, he was talking to his rat bastard son then. That's who he was talking <laughs> to. <laughs> Wait till you hear our episode with Dominic Pola from the guy who took down the Iceman. You want to hear cuss? Anyway, back to our scheduling program. <laughs> yeah. He's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's, you know. So then you see, you know, Narcos puts out on the show that I was on the roof when Pablo's killed. That's not true. I was back at the base. I was in the colonel's office when the gunfight went down. I actually rode out to the scene after the fact with Colonel Martinez in his Jeep. You know, so this. That's why you didn't get Pedro playing you. (laughs) Well, we we actually make a big point of that every show we do because we want the world to know that the true heroes, it's not Javier Pena, Steve Murphy. It's the Columbia National Police Mm -hmm. because they took their country back from that piece of 
whatever you want to call him. Shit. I think we call piece of shit is what we say. Yeah, piece yeah. of shit. One other interesting yeah. thing, too, the, the difference between, you know, because there was two hunts for Pablo. The first one that Javier was involved with, but he turned himself into La Catedral, said, I'll build my own prison and stuff. There was a lot of issues with information leaking and stuff and a lot of threats. Why? Because they used police officers from the same area that Pablo was from. So yeah. one of the strategic decisions they made the second time, but wh- where did they bring the officers from? Were they, were they from uh, Bogota or some other places or where'd they bring them in from? Anywhere other than Antioquia, which is like the state where Medellin is located. Mm-hmm. You know, and okay. here's the real reason Pablo surrendered. I don't know if you know this part of the story or not, but- I arrived in Columbia in June. Oh, this is bull. This is 19- pure bullshit. Hey, hey, coming up. Can, you, can you mute him? Can you mute him? Just a <laughs> I arrived there. I got three days before he surrendered. And you know what? He heard Murphy's in the country. He's like, well, shit, I guess I'll just give it up. Surrender right now before uh, he gets me. That's right. Right. Because he knew you were there. That's what really happened. <laughs> well, this has been a real pleasure. And ladies and gentlemen, if you want to, if you want a taste of, uh, of what you could get from Game of Crimes, crimes. I think this this interview kind of sums it up pretty well. <laughs> At least from what I've heard, that it's a lot of fun, a lot of cool stories. You guys have a ton of great guests, a lot of the actual people that were involved in some of these manhunts in these cases. Uh, so so check it out. Their names are Steve Murphy and Morgan Wright. The podcast is called Game of Crimes. Check it out. I'm sure it's going to be your next big true crime binge. And gentlemen, thank you so much. It's been a blast. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Bob. And we'll pray for you as a fire. Yeah, and you're, you're just in time to get back to your nap. Bye, <laughs> <laughs> <I'm up. laughs> True Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.